Good evening. So how many of you love going to the grocery store as much as I do? That's being sarcastic. I uh, worked in a grocery store for about seven years, and I don't uh, look forward to going to the grocery store. Thankfully, I have a wife that loves going to the grocery store. I mean, it's the highlight of her week. She can't wait to go to the grocery store. That's being sarcastic as well. Every now and then, though, I will accompany her to the grocery store if I've gotten in trouble or something of that nature and I'm trying to get in her good graces, I will accompany her to the grocery store. And there's one thing that I've learned about going to the grocery store, and that is a rule that you probably already know. You don't go hungry, right? You go to the grocery store when you're hungry, and that's a guarantee that you're going to spend more money. Your eyes are bigger than your, uh, you know, your, your eyes are bigger than your stomach at that point, or however the phrase goes. I mean, you look at everything, and everything looks good. And you think to yourself, I can't wait till I get home. And you see some people in the grocery store that have already opened items. You've seen those people? You know, they've already opened something or they're drinking something. You assume they're going to pay for it when they get up to the counter. It's dangerous to go to the grocery store when you're hungry. That's a guarantee you're going to spend more money. That's a guarantee that you're probably going to come away with more than you actually need. But you know, I think about church, and I think about how Oldham Lane offers a spiritual feast every Sunday and Wednesday, and yet when is the last time that you came to church hungry? And when was the last time you left filled? There's an old French proverb that says that the beginning of a great meal is hunger. And I'm sure that's true when you think about it. I mean, it's hard to enjoy a meal when you're not hungry. You know, it's hard to force yourself to eat. You enjoy a meal more when you're really hungry. When's the last time you came to worship hungry? When's the last time you came to Bible class hungry? I used to think that it was my job as the preacher to make you eat. And I've realized over the years that that's not my job. And I can't do that anyway. Even as much as I would like to sometimes, I can't force you to eat. I can't force feed you. Here's what I do think my job is. I think my job is to make you hungry, or at least attempt to do that. Again, you play an integral role in that, but I do believe that it is my responsibility to do my best to make you hungry. And if I were to boil it all down and say, what is it that I want you to hunger for, it would probably be this. Christ-centered living, because that, I think that encompasses everything that is involved in being pleasing to God and being mission-minded and mission-focused. But I'm not sure that we always understand what Christ-centered means. I think it's one of those hyphenated words that we throw around, but we don't always know what the exact definition is. It sounds good, but we don't always know how to apply it. Kind of like working a higher math problem. We get to the answer and we notice that we got the answer right, but we don't know how we got there. And I think sometimes that's us when it comes to spiritual lives that we live. We come to a point where we realize maybe we're doing the right things, but we're not really sure how we got there. And so what it means, first of all, for Christ-centered living is motive. Our motive is to be everything that God would have us to be, to live up to that potential that he has for us. At the core of every human decision is a motivation. And so what is your motivation? What is your motive? At the heart of Christ-centered living is a relationship. 
so that everything that I do is motivated by close communion with God. Like Paul said, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. A Christ-centered life is, is a life where it's hard to tell where you stop and Jesus starts. Like Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, because he had been crucified with Christ. That's really a good summation of what it means to live a Christ-centered life. It's crucifying your old self, living a new life that so closely mirrors the life of your Savior that it's hard to tell the difference. Now, another thing involved is not just motive, but the fact that Jesus gets all the glory. Jesus is the compass. He is our direction for everything that we do in life. We are no longer controlled by selfish pursuits. We want what he wants, and we make it our goal to imitate him in all that we do. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 reads, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so the question becomes, does the love of Christ control you? Another way that we can tell if you're living a Christ-centered life. Being Christ-centered also means that we put all of our eggs in one basket. Like we talked about this morning, it means that we are all in, that we are betting everything on a relationship with Him. We are all in on discipleship. Our only hope is in Jesus. If we're not going to get to heaven through Him, we're not going to make it, right? We have put everything in that basket. Of course, that doesn't mean that this life holds no real value for us, that we only live looking toward heaven. Obviously, we have a mission to do right here. We have the Great Commission, and we have to be not only Christ-centered, but mission-minded, right? That's part of it. And so we live with a purpose. We don't get too comfortable here, though, because like Paul said, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So there's the, this life, there's this life that we live in Christ, and there's this life that we look forward to, a great life in heaven someday, and we can certainly enjoy this life, but whether it's gloomy or whether it's grand, Ultimately, this life isn't all that there is. So, not to say that we kind of got that out of the way, but we did. We kind of got that out of the way, and maybe that makes a little more sense when it comes to defining a Christ-centered life. But what does it look like with practical application? What does it mean to live a Christ-centered life? Because my guess is that most, if not all of us in the auditorium this morning, including, or this evening, including me, want to live a Christ-centered life. And even we strive for that. But so many times we find that we're failing in that effort. And a lot of times we don't even know why. We don't even know where we've messed up. Or sometimes, you know, we, we, we go in a certain direction for so long that we have to wake up one day and realize, oh, that's not the direction I need to be going. So what does it look like? Well, a Christ-centered life properly defined is one where God gets all the glory it's a life in which we're all in as disciples. It's at the heart of this relationship is a relationship. Jesus is our purpose, our motive for everything that we do. But there's another element that we cannot afford to overlook, and it's grasping the, the difference between a me-centered life and a Christ-centered life. And that sounds easy to say, and I think we all agree with that. But how difficult is it to live in a direction that is not me-focused or me-centered? You know, I think... From the very beginning of our existence, 
we're fighting this, right? I mean, we're born selfish. Those of you who have toddlers, those of you who raise toddlers, those of you who were a toddler at one point, you know that it doesn't take long for a child to learn the word mine. And it's rather comical, but also frustrating that you'll see a child playing with a toy and, and your child may not care anything about that toy, has never even thought about that toy until they see somebody else playing with it. And then they immediately go over and they grab it away from him and say, mine. Because whoever takes the toy becomes the owner, right? And that doesn't go away just because you have your fifth birthday. Because it's something that we deal with for the rest of our lives. We fight this me-centered attitude and this, this world revolving around us kind of mentality. We even fight it in the church, as we've talked about many times. You know, we gear everything toward the consumer, so to speak. And so we make it all about our, our, our young people, whether it be our, our little kids or our young adults or our youth. And then we, we hear the preacher say, well, it's not about you. And you say, well, why not? It's always been about me. From the time I was little all the way up, it's always been about me, even in the church. And that's true, right? And so it's difficult, no matter how hard we try to fight this me-centered mentality. It's hard to let go of the mine approach. And we see it in adulthood, don't we? But God, it's my money. I don't want to have to share it. But God, it's my dream. Why won't you let it become a reality? But God, this is my church. Why won't you let me lead it? But God, it's my life. Don't you want me to be happy? But God, I'm sick of treatments. I just want my health back. Why can't I be healthy? But God, why did she have to die? Why couldn't you leave her around a little longer? And so the deeper we go, the more profound it gets, and the more we realize that this mind mentality is not easy to shake. It's hard to not claim ownership of this life, isn't it? It really is. It's hard not to claim ownership. We struggle mightily to see that no matter how hard we try, no matter how bad we want to be, we're not in control. We're like the toddler who shouts mine and God says, no, 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 that's not yours. That doesn't belong to you. You're going to give it back eventually. So you better take care of it. This has hit home with me recently. You know, my, my son, I mean, he... he it's his senior year. Come on, God, it's his senior year. He's a decent athlete. We want to watch him as parents. And he tears his ACL. Doesn't seem fair. And then you sit there and you think about it as a dad and as a mother. It probably hurts us as much as it does the, you know, Zane. But you sit there and you think about it and you say, in the grand scheme of things, what's most important here, you know? Still tough. But in the grand scheme of things, what's... What's most important? And so then you, you also confront the reality that maybe as a father, that was an idol in my life. Maybe I put too much emphasis on it. But in big ways and small ways, we're always dealing with this. This mind mentality. And when you have a mind mentality, guess what you do? You look to God and you ask why. Why can't you be more fair? Why can't you... Why can't you have things, why can't you make things work out for me? It's a failure to see the bigger picture. It's a failure to understand that it's not about you. 
For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. 1 Timothy 6 and 7. How will you care for the things that don't belong to you? How will you care for the things that belong to God? That's really the question. The bad news for some is that they're not in control. The good news is you don't have to be. You don't have to bear the burden of being in control, but that's difficult for us as well. But you do realize that your life is a story. And guess who the author is? It's God. God is writing this story. Now, yes, we can take the pen and we can write our own story and we can go off in a different direction. But when we allow him to be in control, we don't have to bear that burden. And we say, your will be done. And as scary as that can be, there's also a lot of freedom in that. It's the recognition that we have a part in everything that we are, that every gift, every talent that we have, every blessing that we enjoy, we have a part in that, and our part is to be a steward. We're not the Lord of it. He is the source of everything. He created us. He saves us. He owns us. He is the source. And Acts 17, 26 expresses this very well. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Psalm 24 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So since everything belongs to God, we must treat everything with our utmost care and concern. You ever borrow something that belongs to your neighbor? Maybe chainsaw or lawnmower, something, you know, it's a little hefty, power equipment, something of that nature. And you borrow something like that from the neighbor, not, not sugar or eggs or something like that, but something a little bit... Uh, more valuable. You treat it differently, don't you? Maybe then, if it's your own, you treat it with the utmost care and concern. I, I can remember being in college, and I wanted to go to the lake with some buddies, and so my dad called up his friend, and his friend let me borrow his boat, even let me borrow his pickup to pull it. We had a great time at the lake, and I'm coming home, and it's been raining, and I start to hydroplane, and I look out the passenger window, and there's the boat. I did a lot of damage, needless to say, to that boat, to his truck. And then I got home and my dad did a lot of damage to me because I didn't treat it with the utmost care and concern. A hard lesson learned. But when it's somebody else's property, we tend to do that. How much more so do we do that with God's stuff? The stuff that he has blessed us with. Whether it be our spouse, whether it be our children, not just the material things, whether it be our talents, our abilities, whatever it may be, none of it belongs to you. It all belongs to God. And someday we will all give an accounting for it. Therefore, we cannot be so careless. And we cannot allow them become an idol in our lives. Because a lot of things compete for center stage in our hearts. We can't allow the things that God has blessed us with to upstage the one who has blessed us. But let's look at it another way. You're looking at Christ-centered living. Let's look at it in a way that the Bible often approaches it. Like a marriage. When you enter into a relationship, a marriage covenant with your spouse, the mind mentality has to be done away with. Some of you, early on in a marriage, had to learn this. And you realize that uh, marriage cannot be about my personal happiness or else I'm never going to be happy. It works against each other, right? 
And so you learn very quickly that it's no longer about me and mine. It's now about we and ours. If you don't figure that out, your marriage is going to be unhealthy and very likely is going to end maybe even in divorce, but it's not going to be a healthy marriage. And so you operate differently. Like if, if you're the wife in, in this marriage relationship, you're coming home from work and you stop by the grocery store and, and instead of getting the things that you would like, maybe you call up your husband and you say, hey, I'm stopped at the grocery store. Is there anything you want me to get that you would like to eat? You do that because you're no longer thinking about just yourself. Guys, if you're you know, in a marriage and, and you're coming home from work and and, and maybe you call up your wife and you say, look, I know you've had a hard day, you're stressed, how about I just pick us something up so, so that you don't have to cook? You do that because you think differently. You're not thinking about me and my, you're thinking about we and us, right? And throughout the pages of Scripture, especially the New Testament, we see that the marriage relationship is reflective of a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a covenant relationship here. I bring Christ to the center of my life. I consider his will for my life first and above all else. My life is now devoted to him and to that relationship. Christ-centered means having a marriage mindset. I was reading the other day about a young lady who was 38 years old who took this to the extreme. She married Jesus. In a ceremony in Fort Wayne, Indiana, she married Jesus. She said, a lot of people get married, and she said, I realize that God has blessed the union of many people, and I just feel like that he was speaking to me and saying, you need to marry Jesus. And so she has married Jesus. She said, and I quote, I think that really, in some sense, we are all called to be married. It's just a matter of discerning how. So my marriage is to Christ, and someone else's marriage is to their spouse. That is a good desire that is planted within us by God. She is a consecrated virgin, which means that she has dedicated her life to the service of God in perpetual virginity. She had a wedding and a chapel and everything else. Of course, Jesus wasn't there in the flesh. And I admire her dedication, her commitment, but I mean, that, that's not what's being spoken of here. It's not a literal marriage to Jesus, but in a spiritual sense, we attach ourselves to him. Genesis 2.24 reads, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus reiterated these words in Matthew chapter 19, as, as well as Paul, who did the same thing in Ephesians 5. The idea is selfless love and dedication that is willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary to meet the needs of the other person. And in this case, it's a selfless love that's dedicated to being like Christ and living at the center of God's will. But let's say you go over to Ephesians chapter 5, and you know that passage there that we have talked about a whole lot, starting in about verse 22, you look at that passage where Paul relates the marriage covenant to a relationship with Jesus. We've often talked about this passage in terms of marriage, but there's one verse there that we really haven't ever talked about too much or gone into great detail about, and it's verse 32 where it says, this mystery is great but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What mystery? What's the mystery he's talking about? Well, to gain a little context, these words come on the heels of verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what's the mystery that Paul is referring to here? 
The Greek word is mysterion, and it can refer to several things, but in a general sense, mysterion refers to things not previously known that are revealed by God at an appointed time. You might remember when Paul stated that I have learned the secret of contentment in Philippians 4.12. The word secret there relates to this word, mysterion. Here in Ephesians 5, it's referring to the union of Christ and his people. The fact that they are one flesh. The fact that this union is so beautifully illustrated through the covenant of marriage. And so mysterion refers to the once hidden plan of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. You think of a mystery novel and how there is hidden information as you read the book that isn't revealed until you get to the very end. That's the idea that Paul is referring to here. Timothy Keller states it this way. He said, this is the secret that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. That when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. We often read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and we conclude that, that Paul is comparing the church to a marriage, when in actuality, the reverse is what's true. It's the other way around. He's comparing marriage to Christ's relationship with the church, and Paul is pointing to this leaving and cleaving concept, this becoming one flesh, this mystery that is revealed through our Lord and Savior, which means what? It means that the relationship between the church and Christ is mirrored in a relationship between husband and wife. Being one flesh is about living out your baptism and remaining in covenant. This is true whether we're talking about an earthly partnership or a spiritual one. The Christian life is about living your baptism and staying faithful to the covenant. Putting him first and making him the center of your life. Staying true to the covenant. This is all about oneness. It's all about this new math. One plus one equals one. That's what it's about. You're no longer in the equation. It's no longer about you. Now it's all about the one that you imitate. I use this concept in weddings a lot of times. I may have told you this before, but you know, a lot of times when I do a wedding, I like to quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that description of love there. But I like to take the couple's names and insert them in the passage. You know, like James is patient. James is kind and is not jealous. James does not brag and is not arrogant. You get the idea. You know, Debbie does not seek her own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Because if we can place ourselves in that passage and meet the description of love that is given there, then, then we've got a grip on what Paul is trying to get across. This is a description of love, but it should be a description of us as well, right? That's how... We're going to make a marriage successful, and, and that's how we're going to be Christ-centered in our daily lives. The goal is to consider that this is more than just emotion. This is a way of life. It's who we are. It's, it's not just what we do. And if we can wrap our minds around this and humbly approach God with a marriage mindset, making Him our motive, putting all our eggs in that basket, seeking to glorify Him in everything that we do, realizing that it's not about us, that, that this is not about me and I and mine. This is, about, this is about Him, really, and Him alone. There's a guy by the name of Danny Simpson who lived in Ottawa, Canada. And in 1990, he was down and out 
He was not a man who had many skills. He didn't have a lot of future ahead of him. He had lost his job, all you know, the bad luck that you could think of, and so Danny Simpson was desperate. He took a gun that had been handed down in his family, and he went to a local bank and robbed it for $6,000. Now, Danny Simpson wasn't very good at robbing banks either. He got caught pretty quickly. And what came out after his arrest were two things. Number one, he got six years in prison for robbing that bank for $6,000. But the second thing that came out after his arrest was really pretty shocking, and that is that gun that he used in the holdup that was passed down in his family was the kind of gun that would make people like Jack Smith salivate. It was worth $100,000. So if you're following along, Danny Simpson robbed a bank for $6,000 while holding $100,000 in his hand. I think sometimes, as Christians, we're the same way. We're grabbing and we're hoarding things in this life that don't really amount to a whole lot. We're valuing things that really have no value in the end, and all the while, we have everything in our hands. Everything that we need. Everything that is important that God has placed in our hands. We have a relationship with Him. We have the hope of heaven. We have a life lived for Christ. And that's all that really matters. That He is our motivation. That we are married to Him. That He is our everything. And so, you've got to be careful not to get hung up on things that don't matter in eternity. And we've got to be Him-focused and not me-centered. Understanding that it's not about us. So Chris, why do you talk about that over and over again? Because it's the one thing that plagues the church. It's the one thing that plagues us as Christians. It's the one thing that if we could ever get over, we could be so much more for God. I see it. I encounter it all the time. I mean, you folks are perfect, so I'm not talking about you, but... You know, in places that I've been, places that I go and speak, you know, you talk to elders and preachers, and, you know, it all relates to these horror stories that you hear. It all relates to the fact that I want to make it about me, and it's not about you. And if we could ever get that through our head, and more importantly, if we could ever get that to sink into our heart, how much better for God we would be. Thank you for listening tonight. If we can help you in some way, if... If you, need, if you need prayers from this church family, if, if maybe you're going through a particular time in your life that's difficult and you'd like to, to talk to one of the staff or, or one of the elders, and certainly you can find one of us afterwards tonight. Maybe you're ready to study the Bible with someone. Certainly we want to set that up. Maybe you're, maybe you're ready to get, begin a daily walk with God. Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. You know, we say it every week, don't leave here without being right with God. I mean, like we talked about this morning, it's not a safe bet. And so we encourage you this morning, if you have a need, Caleb's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?